Hello, welcome to Postcolonial Space. I'm Masood Raja, and I'm just going to take a few moments to introduce the video that comes after this introduction. As you all might be aware, this semester I'm teaching online class classes, and we often have at least one or two live sessions every week. But of course, for privacy reasons, I cannot make those sessions available publicly. So what I've decided to do is to edit some of those online lectures as they are recorded and extract from them some useful materials that I can share publicly with a wider audience. So with that hope, I will be making some of these class sessions available to you over the semester. I hope this is useful to you. I hope you can use these in your classes and uh, I hope you can also use them personally for your own education. So as always, please let me know if you have any questions in the comment section, if you would like me to add something else or, you know, uh, enhance the level of engagement with you through these recorded versions. That's all I have to say. Thank you so much. And let's watch one of the lectures, the redacted version, and see how it goes. Thank you. And here it is. Coming to chapter one, from the very first line, she basically first tells us the two ways of looking at Western feminism. And the first is, you know, what she says, a third world feminism must address itself to two simultaneous projects. The internal critique of hegemonic Western feminism and the formulation of resistant feminisms that are coming from the third world. And what she's saying is my project in this chapter is to explain to you the first one. What is the hegemonic project of Western feminism? How do I see it? How do I discuss it? And then what are the implications of not knowing it? But also what is important to know it? So we already know that in this chapter, she will be discussing the hegemonic tendencies of Western feminism. What are the inherent colonizing strategies of Western feminism that she sees? But there are a few things that we must unpack. We must clearly understand what she means by hegemony. And we must clearly understand what she means by discursive, because without knowing these two concepts, you know, you, you will not get to the heart of her argument. If you read your Antonio Gramsci, the prison notebooks, and then go to Althusser, who reworks it, then we realize that in any given capitalistic society, there are two ways in which power works. One is through dominance, which is brute force. That also comes from Antonio Gramsci. The second is through hegemony, and that involves a sort of a willing consent of the governed. But most of the times, a hegemonic order is developed through production of knowledge and its perpetuation, through positioning of who speaks and who is spoken about. So what all of that bears upon her use of the term hegemonic because it's not just that this certain Western feminist worldview prevails, it's also that it offers itself as normative, as the real truth against which everything else is measured. And so a lot of times you will see people who adopt a hegemonic positionality or subjectivity are the people who see their subject position as the norm 
and against that they measure everything else most of the times in any given culture the dominant constituency the dominant race the dominant subjectivity gender are the one who consider their world view the norm and 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 only see the world through that right and so that then she combines it with discursive and that's very important to understand her argument because when she goes to women as a category and she talks about women enter this discourse as pre-constituted we cannot understand that without understanding what do we mean when we say discursive disseminated through prestigious journals and publications and through institutions within any given science or within any given field of study which we kind of internalize but it also constitutes who we are is primarily a discourse it is always connected to power right not a hierarchical power but power of knowledge that gives someone the power to pronounce or make pronouncements right so that's why those who have the power to make pronouncements are called enunciating subject Now another thing that happens in production of knowledge its publishing its dissemination its normalization is also that people who are scholars or people who are practitioners of a certain science or a certain practice must also go and constantly look for newer objects of study which presupposes that in the process of producing knowledge we are also creating newer and newer objects of study within our field creation of those objects of study then becomes a discursive practice because a discourse goes seeking those objects of study so if you apply it to a slightly scientific enterprise let's say if it is psychology how does it become psychology there is a body of knowledge produced by people like freud lacan and everyone else and melanie klein and others who basically tell us okay with these practices with this research we can map human consciousness and see how it is structured there is a part of it we call id there is a part of it we call ego there is a part of it we call super ego here is how the unconscious works here is how the conscious brain works this is what we call the oedipus complex all of these are vocabularies of that field of knowledge you go and study psychology when you are studying psychology you are learning the discourse of the psychology and in the process then you if you are going to go do research you're go, what are you going to do research on you're going to say okay i'm going to go and find some other new psychological disorder and see where i can implant it so that's how you create your object of studies when you get your degree you have your diploma you have your board certification you create a practice where you say i will offer counseling the reason i go to you for counseling because i've already already internalized that you're a psychologist or a psychiatrist you have the credentials to hear me out you have the credentials to give me advice you have the credit all of that happens because i believe in that scientific discourse So when we say discursive something is discursively produced what we are basically saying is that our exchanges with others 
are pretty rarely outside of a discourse. If I call you a woman, I have no idea of what a, a natural, non-discursive figure of a woman is. My idea of a woman is discursively produced because what I associate with that nomenclature, what I expect of that nomenclature, what we assign to it as its attributes are all discursively produced, socially and discursively. So in that sense, then pretty much our entire idea of the world, since we know of it through knowledge, through experience, through reading, through watching, through listening, through someone telling us what things mean, is discursive. Does that make sense? So when she talks about the third world, world woman appearing as pre-constituted, what she's saying is that these scholars are, when they invoke the term third world woman, there is no attempt at understanding the third world women in their particularity along with the ramifications of where they live, what creates them. They are already pre-constituted as victims and then you go on and start writing about it. And that's what she has a problem with. You will have a problem with that as well. If if you walked into this classroom and, uh, and I had pre-discursive views of how I will treat you, if, I mean, thankfully I cannot do that in a, in a syllabus, but if I could, if I would just say Gener generally speaking, female students tend to be less intelligent, so I'll give you 10 extra points, and then you all will be insulted, right? Because I am I am dealing with you as pre-constituted inferior, inferior subjects, and, and you can reverse that. So that is her point. That's why it's important to understand when she talks about the discursive nature of this hegemony project. So she's combining quite brilliantly this Antonio Gramsci's Marxist train about hegemony and then Foucault's theory of power and discourse to argue her point. It's kind of seamlessly done, but we have to kind of tweak it out. Good. So JS says a discourse can be unspoken because it's so prevalent and so powerful that we take it as natural, as scientific, as uncontested. So in that sense, our discourse, I mean, the basic tendency of power and discourse always is to appear as natural, appear as uncontested, as pre-constituted, not dependent on the structures of power. But yes, in so many ways, it will be invisible, especially to those who are the enunciating subjects within that given discourse. So her project in this is to point out certain pre-existing tropes or discourses that Western feminists assume to be pre-existent when they are dealing with the case of the third world women and third world feminists. Now do keep in mind, third world itself is a slightly dated term now. We don't really use it because it has become a derogatory term. But at the time that she's writing and even before that 1970s and 80s, it was a revolutionary term. Okay, after the 1952 Bandung Conference and non-aligned movement, 
third world was the most revolutionary idea because these were the countries who came together in the UN General Assembly and elsewhere as well as the non-aligned movement. I think it had 72 members in the beginning whose idea was that we will neither join the Warsaw Pact nor the North Atlantic Alliance. We will be the third world, which, which is neither this nor that. And all, pretty much all the colonial nations that were getting their independence were part of it. So it was a revolutionary concept as to offering in that three worlds theory, the first world being United States and its allies, the second world being the Iron Curtain, the Warsaw Pact, and the third world being as non-aligned nations of the world. And so at that point, of course, it was a revolutionary idea. And then post 1980s, 1990s, it kind of becomes a derogatory term because that's how it is used. So that's why we come with, you know, different euphemism, developing world, whatever. My colleagues in post-colonial studies, most of them use developing world. And there's a big debate in post-colonial studies too, because there was something revolutionary about the third world. The problem with developing world is because it still connects the world to a developmental theory of history, where then you can also implore that the North Atlantic regions and maybe Japan to some extent have reached a certain temporality where they are developed and others are trying to catch up with that. So that's kind of, there's a, that problematic there. But yeah, we traditionally use developing world question was there ever a second world or no the second world was the warsaw pact countries soviet union and the others and of course there is also now in the world system theory uh, what we call the fourth world and the fourth world is the indigenous people in settler colonies like the native americans here near canada in india it is the adivasis and dalits in Pakistan, it is the tribal people or people whose rights are not equal to other citizens. These are all the, the fourth world people. Religious minorities sometimes constitute the fourth world people. And uh, Spivak uses it and quite a few other post-colonial scholars use it. Good. Okay, so remember, on page 19, she will tell you there can, of course, be no apolitical scholarship. So for her, feminism of any kind is absolutely always connected to question of politics. What she's trying to do on page six is she's trying to tell us here are the three categories under which the third world woman is discussed by Western feminists. But she also qualifies her usage of the term Western feminist, okay? So she, she's very careful. She says, and I quote, My reference to Western feminism is by no means intended to imply that it is a monolith. Rather, I'm attempting to draw attention to the similar effects of various textual strategies used by writers that codify others as non-Western and hence themselves as implicitly Western. So these are some of the hedging that we all have to do in post-colonial studies, but also in other fields, is where you basically, even when you're 
mobilizing a term as Western feminism, you're carefully pointing out to your readers that, look, guys, I don't believe that there is something called Western feminism, which exists as a monolithic system. I'm using it in this particular sense. Anytime a feminist is assuming her station, her place to be in the West and from that vantage point tells us she is going to read the third world women and third world feminism. That is a self-presentation as me implicitly being a Western feminist and these being African and other feminists. So she's pretty careful there. So what she's then saying is there are three main registers under which the figure of the third world woman is constructed. The first one, what she points out, is the concept of women as a category of analysis, which is on page 22, and we'll get to it in a minute. Then she gives us the methodological universalisms or women oppression as a global phenomena. And third is the subject of power, who in this exchange of the Western feminist recording the struggles and everything else of the third world feminist is the enunciating subject, who gets to speak and who is spoken for. These are the three registers under which she is discussing, as she's already told us in the opening paragraph, the internal critique of hegemonic Western feminism. These are the three registers under which she's going to indict it, study it, and challenge it. She also exactly tells us which text she's handling. And she's she's using nine books published by Z Press. They have a series on feminism. So these are nine books published by Z Press, all dealing with women's issue in the post-colonial world, in the developing world, in the third world. So she is carefully reading nine texts produced by the so-called Western feminist scholars dealing with different issues of non-Western feminism and then pointing out what are the problems that she sees in that. And that is what she's pointing out. But there's another thing that she's pointing out on page 22. Remember, she also talks about, let's go to the, the six things that she mentions under women as a category of analysis. So what she's means by that is that the phrase women as a category of analysis refers to the crucial assumptions that all women across classes and cultures are somehow socially constituted as a homogenous group identified prior to the process of analysis. This is an assumption that characterizes much feminist discourse. So when you think of women as a category of analysis, what she's saying is what ends up happening is that the term woman, the figure of woman is already pre-constituted and thought about. And within that third world woman already comes laden with certain things pre-associated with it when the Western feminists start reading. There is also a critique of and in these categories, there is also a critique of the capitalistic mode of thinking women's agency. And she's criticizing that this idea of autonomous woman and privatized view of womanhood where the argument is women should be able to excel in the marketplace as well as in the corporations just as men are 
and that is a very pretty individualistic capitalistic way of thinking women she also gives us a hint of the big debate in marxism about the distinction between productive labor outside of the house and maintenance labor which was attributed to women okay so in this section i focus on six specific ways in which women as a category of analysis is used in western feminist discourse on women in the third world each of these examples illustrates the construction of third world women as a homogenous powerless group often located as implicit victims of particular socio-economic systems and so what are they seen as victims of male violence as universal dependents victims of colonial process victims of the arab familial system victims of the islamic code victims of the economic development process these are some of the registers under which women in the third world are studied now there is one constant signifier here and that is the signifier of victimhood right that comes pre-constituted any and these are the nine books that she is referring to that all of them have gone in to study women in the third world in the developing world but a lot it is not an open-ended inquiry there are certain attributes already associated to the figure of the third world woman and then those are implanted and studied victimhood is part of that right there is no study in these nine books which talks about women as constructed through the social system but also women as having agency women having power women having historical agency the role of victimhood is already preconstituted is assumed is taken as what you call it is the irreducible attribute of third world women and then there is a homogenization going on I have a question what about those feminists who argue that women who say that they take hijab as a choice are not valid subjects because they have been indoctrinated with these ideas what would be a post colonial response to that well i mean the question to those feminists then would be what is it that they consider autonomous womanhood i mean the counter question is what is it that you consider autonomous womanhood is autonomous womanhood or being an autonomous female subject a subject who has the freedom legally to be equal to men has equal access to the public sphere has equal access to the resources of the state cannot be told that you can't do this as a woman or an autonomous woman is who can wear a short skirt show her cleavage and uh, have premarital sex have multiple sexual partners it depends on what are you attributing to it an autonomous female subject so the question to these feminists then wouldn't be what is their indoctrination the question would be what is your indoctrination what are the attributes that you assume construct an autonomous woman two If you are saying these women are indoctrinated through a religious system you're already assigning them the role of passive recipients of spiritual knowledge you're not assigning them the role of intellectual beings who can read the scripture and decide for themselves whether or not 
they are going to follow a certain trope, follow a certain practice of their religion. Why don't we ask this question of men? If men proclaim to be, I'm a Catholic, I'm a Christian, I'm a Baptist minister, I'm a Baptist, why do we have a problem with they performing an identity that is scripture-based, that is religion-based? So these are some of the questions that you ask people. My litmus test always is that if they exist in a culture where they have the choice, where they have the choice to take hijab or not take hijab, and where no one is forcing them to cover themselves, either directly through law, as in Saudi Arabia, or indirectly through social ostracization or the male gaze, if it is a question, if a woman is taking hijab or covering herself simply because she's an autonomous human subject and she goes out in the public sphere and says, you know, I'm going to put a chadar over my head. That's what my religion tells me to do. That's the distinction that we ought to make. So in case of Saudi Arabia, it is mandated by the state. But within that, even then, we cannot assume a monolithic, submissive Saudi female identity because we do not know how many of them are undermining it. That's, that's a male way of looking at it. And, and this is slightly off the topic. What are the acts of agency that we perform to prove that we are autonomous subjects? We go and make friends. We, we have conversations with like-minded people. We do things that are taboo, right? That are not acceptable. So according to my research through the friends who work in Saudi Arabia, female friends actually, you know what the most transgressive question their students, female students at a female liberal arts college used to ask them? Two of my friends who taught in Saudi Arabia, imagine what questions would they ask them. I mean, the, their female students would ask them, do you have a lover? In Saudi Arabia, these women who are wearing hijab and supposed to be submissive, all of them were having affairs left and right, using their sexual agency. Now, that doesn't make them free women because politically, the public sphere is still foreclosed to them. But what, what it proves anecdotally, the point that that even if a woman is wearing hijab or covering herself, that doesn't necessarily mean that she's voiceless and has no intellect and no rational capabilities. That's how I would try to answer. Yeah, Persepolis really explored that. In, in Iran, it's even more complicated. Now, another thing about hijab, since we are in that topic, is that in most, the history of hijab in Islam is really complicated. And I do uh, encourage you to read Fatima Marnisi's Women and Islam. But in most Islamic societies outside the Arab world, hijab was an upper class practice. It was the practice of noble women or upper middle class women. Traditionally, the working class women in India, in Pakistan, in Malaysia, in Indonesia, they have always worked in the fields. They, they have not, never just sat at home and covered themselves and not gone out there. So that was also class-based okay, practice of hijab. Then there is a reactionary response to the West. Remember, most of these countries also went through revolutionary wars 
but anti-colonial struggles during the anti-colonial struggles against the figure of the of the european men and women you then go and retrieve the figure of the muslim woman the mother the daughter and sister for whose honor you are fighting so there is a retrograde movement in colonial fight you go and retrieve the figure of the strident fighting woman but who follows her own tradition uh, you see it in algeria the hijab becomes a sign of resistance itself so there are different ways of reading it okay so this is getting too complicated i guess but what i'm trying to say is that what what we just talked about amongst ourselves is actually a more complicated discussion of hijab than what he she's saying a lot of these feminist scholars would read into it right that's the point so women as victims of male violence the argument there is that the feminists who go and study this they already assume there is an irrevocable patriarchy within which the role that women play is is of perpetual victims and what that does is it takes away any attempts of solidarity amongst women even in solidarity with men remember you cannot change a society simply by freeing the women you have to bring on board majority at least of men as well so what if you just assume that there is this immutable order in which there are men and then there are women and the twin never meets then you're already perpetuating a myth of fixed gender roles and gender politics and associations and the problem she says with that is that assumes that that is the only role women have as the recipients of male violence and that's a huge generalization then women as universal dependents that's also another study which where people can actually go and make these claims that you know african women are dependents of their male counterparts so are muslim women are dependents of their male counterparts the argument isn't that there isn't such dependency but the point is that first of all it's not perpetual and two sometimes it is legal sometimes it is de facto but it is not universal class cuts across it if you look at rights to own property the british women get the right to own property in 1830 just the legal rights but in the 8th century the muslim women all over the world when they professed the faith technically had the right to inherit property right to own their own business right to ask their husbands because it was you know a polygamous culture right to ask their husbands that i want a separate house if you're going to take another wife right to ask their husband that here is how much i need to be maintained alimony then if they divorce right to fight to keep their children all of these were legally provided to women in 8th century islam the rights that are irrevocable now socially does it happen or not but the point is to make the distinction and then if you look at the class when she talks about dependencies the question is do we go and then study these women as universal dependents or do we go and study these women talk to them 
discuss with them to find out what underwrites that dependency is the global economic system itself incriminated in the project or not what role does politics play in it are there any modes of solidarity patriarchal or others which allow them to fight against this dependency and if we do that nuanced study then we can point out not just for the western audiences right but through that research if these women are themselves not aware of their history what would be more revolutionary for them to know that the us constitution provides women equal rights or two verses from the quran that they can take to their molvi and say what you're saying to me is wrong i have these rights right so those are the distinctions to be made now i mean think of it how huge an impact scholarly work can have in 1898 in india a scholar publishes a book called the rights of women his name is molana mumtaz ali he later goes on to become the father of women's education in india at that time the muslim families were so detached actually from the actual practices of the religion so much of their view of the religion was mythologized that they absolutely did not want their girls to go and get an education but then this scholar comes along and he reads the most authentic texts of islam and points to them that here are the arguments that are being offered against women's education and women's equality and he goes and challenges and dismantles each argument within 50 years of his life then we have women's journals being published women going to school women getting an education women entering a professional life now the argument didn't come from here is the british constitution and we must follow it it didn't come from americans are doing this it came from within the culture and a deeper understanding of it towards solidarity for women for their equality written by a man then eventually of course female scholars go and write their own work but the point is is to deal with the subject with that degree of subtlety instead of assuming women to be universal dependent then women and familial systems women as women are not located within the family rather it is in the family as an effect of kinship structures the women as women are constructed defined within and by the group not only are all arab and muslim women seen to constitute a homogenous oppressed group but there is no discussion of the specific practices within the family that constitute women as mothers wives sisters and so on Arabs and Muslims it appears don't change at all their patriarchal family is carried over from the times of the prophet Muhammad they exist as it were outside history so that's another book which basically says already takes women as victim trope and then tries to suggest that i am going to go study the syrian women and we realize that women in these cultures are not autonomous subjects they are overdetermined by the family and kinship structures in which they exist and what she's trying to point out is that first of all the structures kinship structures are not universal because we're talking about 1.2 billion people spread across 44 countries if you're talking about women in islam if you go to the maghreb right go to the desert in algeria uh, algeria and tunisia 
go to the desert so you will encounter the Tharig. Do you know of the Tharig people? They're, the Tharig used to be the desert warriors who, who would wear these blue tinted turbans. And their tradition was that men would veil themselves in public. Women went unveiled. They're Muslims. And then the only time men would unveil themselves would be when they were attacking an enemy force on horseback. And that was used to be the most frightening sight to, to the European fighters. And they have other traditions too. Their culture was matrilineal and, and women practiced polyandry, right? So the way the men would know is that they can't go into her tent is because they will see there are a man's shoes outside the tent. And they was like, oh, she's with her other partner today. Now, what I'm trying to say is that what it introduces is this idea that it, there is no universal singular womanhood in, in the Islamic cultures. It's different depending on where you are, what your history is. Then there is another thing in patriarchy. Patriarchy has power, but it also has obligations. So representing patriarchy as absolutely evil also doesn't serve, doesn't approach it in a nuanced manner. The obligations of patriarchy are okay if you're thinking that your daughter is not an autonomous human subject. At the same time, you also know that if something happens to her, if she has a problem with her husband or with her you know, in-laws, she will always have her father's house to come back to. We have vocabularies for that. How many of you have read Sandra Cisneros? Remember the story, The Woman Hollering Creek? Have you read that? Remember what her father tells her when she's marrying someone and moves to America, that you will always have our house to come back to. That is patriarchy, which is telling a daughter, you're marrying this guy, we don't know him well, you're moving to America, we'll not be in touch, but if something happens, your father's house will always be there. The symbolic power that a lot of women have in the Islamic cultures on their brothers. You know, my sister is two years older than I am, and I know anecdote doesn't make data, but if she calls me and says, I need your help with this, symbolically in terms of an honor culture, I'll do anything in my power to help her. So those subtleties are not inscribed in these texts because the woman is already constituted as the victim of patriarchy. Now, I'm not saying patriarchy is ipso facto good. It needs to be challenged, but it will have to be challenged within the logic of the system in which it exists. And they, sadly, the, the history of the Tharig is so checkered because they were warriors. So then they started kind of renting themselves out as imperial guards, like Qaddafi's, Muammar Qaddafi's guard was the Tharig warriors. Because they are desert people and nomadic, they have to had to have have to resort to now uh, to kind of mercenary work in the world. Then she, I'm going to skip because I think I'm taking too much time. The second is the methodological universalisms, and that's where she gives the example of the discussion of Parda and all that. But what she means is that no matter who is doing this study, there is a a universal way of approaching the third world woman and certain tropes emerge in that. And that too then, like her, her critique of sexual division of labor. Let me see. Such as 
concepts such as reproduction the sexual division of labor and the family marriage household patriarchy and so on are often used without their specification in local cultural and historical context in most cases the assigning of tasks on the basis of sex has an ideological origin there is no question that a claim such as women are concentrated in service oriented occupations in a large number of countries around the world is descriptively valid descriptively then perhaps the existence of a similar sexual division of labor where women work in the service occupations such as nursing social work etc and men in other kinds of occupations in a variety of different countries can be asserted however the concept of the sexual division of labor is more than just a descriptive category it indicates the differential value placed on men's work versus women's work often the mere existence of a sexual division of labor is taken to be proof of the oppression of women in various societies but the irony and she points it out is that that kind of sexual division of labor even exists in the most highly developed so called society so would we consider those women oppressed now 87% and these are slightly dated figures of elementary school teachers are women in united states teaching profession itself is dominantly staffed by women's work 80% of intensive labor jobs in the world are done by women now it does that mean the third world is inherently divided that labor intensive jobs go to women or because that is what the global corporations want that is how they've structured their economies to tap into women's labor so her point is that sexual division of labor even if it exists even if women are supposed to do certain jobs men are supposed to do certain jobs in itself does not constitute an oppressed state because there is more to it than just natural division of labor and that too is not even monolithic it depends on class it depends on whether you live in urban life or a rural life in so many ways women in in let's say where i come from from pakistan working class women in the south of pakistan and even in the mountains north of pakistan would love to have sexual division of labor because that would say oh you don't have to cut firewood and carry it on top top of your head all the way to the your village upstairs and you don't have to plow the field you don't have to go and cut sugarcane you can just sit at home and raise babies because in so many cases majority of working women in pakistan are not caught up in that kind of sexual division of labor where they are reduced to domestic work only majority of them actually perform physical labor in the agricultural industry or just to sustain life so even in that sense then women are performing that is in itself another form of exploitation and we can talk about it but it's not that patriarchal division of labor where access to public sphere is limited i mean that access is there to exploit women's labor and if you look at how the global corporations work in muslim societies actually it's the corporations reinscribing women into the private sphere you know when you go in and i've already used that example 
to a, my village and say, you know, your women don't even have to leave the house. We'll bring the work to them. That is the capital itself reinscribing women into the private sphere. So your parents can tell you, why do you want to be a teacher and go to go to work every day? You know, just get a skill. We'll buy you a sewing machine and this company wants you to make these underwear. Just sew 500 of them and you'll get 500 rupees, right? Every week. So even the way neoliberal capital works, it itself is inscribing women into the so-called sexual division of labor. And so that's what she's talking about there. And on page 37 is the subjects of power. Because what she's suggesting is that in this engagement, in these nine, nine books, if you read them carefully, what you will learn is that their argument corresponds with colonization. Colonization in a sense where these Western feminists in the name of working to explain the lives of third world women are actually colonizing their experience in the process representing themselves as representers of these oppressed women. So what becomes centered is the figure of the Western feminist herself, who now has an expertise in African women, Asian women, or Muslim women, as if though those are monolithic constituencies too. It also corresponds to a certain kind of humanistic discourse. So think of humanism. On page 41, she says, to conclude, let me suggest some disconcerting similarities between the typically authorizing signature of such Western feminist writings on women in the third world and the authorizing signature of the project of humanism in general. In humanism as a Western ideological and political project that involves the necessary recuperation of the East and women as others. Many contemporary thinkers, including Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Kristeva, have written at length about the underlying anthro anthropomorphism and anthrocentrism that constitute a hegemonic humanistic problematic that repeatedly confirms and legitimates Western man's centrality. So one of the critiques of humanism, Western humanism, has always been that there is a centered human Subject. This human subject is subject of reason, and it has the power to read the word. But in the process of doing that, this human subject then occupies these other worlds and sees them from that central point of view, that dominant point of view. That is what we indict Western humanism for, for, for assuming that its assumptions are universal and natural, against which are measured the distant places and their people. And what she's saying is that what I've just pointed to you about Western feminism, it is doing the same thing that we have already tried to dismantle this centrality of Western reason and Western assumptions about the West being the norm against which everything else must be measured. So that's her critique of it. And so, so you know, she gives us her reading of nine books and she tells us what are the problems in that. She's not assuming a monolithic Western feminism, but she's saying here are nine books that I've read. Here are the subjects that they are dealing with, women from Africa, women from Asia, under these, these registers, right? But the problem in that is that, of course, the third world woman herself doesn't speak, but she's also offered as this monolithic 
uncomplicated figure of history which can be universally studied across a thousand miles in 1000 years as a stable sign without and she gives you one example for study of the women of narsapur and these are the lace workers of narsapur which she points to as a better reading because the researcher doesn't just tell us that oh these women do it at home and they have to stay at in parda but this researcher also points to that when when we had a conversation with them these are not submissive muslim women they are not just sitting there making these doilies for the global corporations to sell they are also aware that if they could go out and work like all the women that they disdain the coolie women the worker women they know that if they go out and work they will make more money and that given a chance they would like to do that and they were also aware of their own exploitation so what she dispels is this idea that these simple women because they live in hijab they live in parda somehow also do not have the capacity to think critically of their own exploitation and then have certain aspirations to change that through solidarity so that's the kind of study that she encourages which doesn't generalize which doesn't center the assumption of the western feminist herself but which takes into account the diversity of the so called figure of the third world woman but more importantly that doesn't take that figure as preconstituted as a victim but goes and studies the discursive framework within which that subjectivity individual and collective is produced so this concludes this edited version of a live lecture i'll be back with more and please keep an eye out for these and i hope these are useful to you Thank you so much and as always peace and love